Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey traders, what's up? What's going on? Thanks so much for listening in to the Chat with Traders podcast. For this episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Dan Azen, one of the co-founders of IEX and one of Forbes 30 Under 30 in finance in 2015. Dan got his start at RBC Bank, where he developed their flagship execution algorithm, Thor. This was also where he met and worked under Brad Katsuyama, one of the other co-founders and the CEO of IEX, who was heavily profiled in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys. As many of you may already know, IEX is an alternative trading system, an ATS, or more commonly referred to as a dark pool. However, IEX is currently in the midst of filing for exchange status. During our talk, I asked Dan more about the projects he worked on at RBC, how IEX went from nothing more than an idea to an operating trading venue, and why they're on a quest to make markets fair. We also discussed the speed bumps which have been implemented at IEX, the mechanics of dark pools, and general chat about the broader market structure. Now, just before we go to the interview, I have a very special announcement that I'm excited to share with you. I recorded a second interview with Peter Brandt, a legendary trader of 45 years who originally appeared on episode 36. Now, this interview will not be released on the podcast as per normal. This is a special interview for subscribers only. Yes, it's still free, of course. So if you'd like to hear this, and I strongly encourage that you do, go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash Peter, where you can download it for free. It's a full-length interview, which runs for over 80 minutes, and it's loaded with a lot of wisdom, as you could imagine and expect from someone who has been a market speculator for such a great amount of time. Again, this will not be released on the podcast like usual, so go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash Peter to download it for free. Okay, team, I really enjoyed this conversation, so I hope you will also. Dan does a really great job of explaining some fairly complex topics in a way that's easy to understand. So I'm your host, Aaron Fifield, and here is my interview with Dan Azen. Yeah, we'll just talk shop. Cool. Sounds great. All right. So Dan, welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. No trouble at all. I'm, um, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. Um, I think I'm going to learn a lot from you and um, I'm really interested about what you guys are doing there at IEX. Um, so, I mean, first things first, let's start from the very beginning. What was your intro to financial markets? How did you get involved in this? Where did it all kick off for you? Got it. Okay. So I guess it goes back to college. Uh, I started off college pre-med. Both my parents are doctors, so no background at all in, in finance in my family. Uh, I didn't really know what you know what a bank was or what what the industry did. Um, and then in college, probably my second year, my third year, 
I had a couple of friends who were leaning towards finance and they got me involved. They, they kind of taught me about the different roles. And so my first actual experience in, in finance, I did an internship in school in, in wealth management, but really uh, my first kind of getting my feet wet was my uh, summer after junior year of college, which is kind of like the main year that you do an internship in finance in the U.S. Uh, I got a job at RBC uh, working in equity trading uh, in, in New York uh, under Brad Katsuyama. So Basically, my first job, not knowing anything about the industry at all, um, happened to be working for this for this guy who I wound up kind of following my whole career so far. Um, so just kind of very, very fortunate, lucky way that worked out. So I worked at RBC um, in trading, in equities, uh, in New York. And my background in school, you know, after I moved out off of pre-med, I, I went into, uh, I started studying math and computer science. And they wanted someone with kind of sort of a programming background to, to help out with um, some quant kind of side projects that Brad wanted to do some studies. And so I worked closely with, um, also with Rob Park, who was kind of his technical, uh, his main technical person on that team, uh, who's now the CTO of, of IAX. And so I would just kind of help Rob out with, uh, whatever Brad wanted. So he, he would have us do, um, studies around trading activity around the open, or he'd have an idea of something that he'd experienced as a trader and he would just want us to study it or build a model around it. Um, just try to kind of help inform what he was doing. And so I spent the whole summer working very closely with both of them. And that was my, my first intro into, into stock, the stock market. Right, right. Very cool. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about some of those studies. Like once um, you, you sort of performed those studies, what did you do with those? What was Brad, what did Brad have in mind to do with those studies? Were you building algorithms around those? Like, can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, so... I mean, at this point, I didn't know anything about how trading worked. And, and Rob had a little bit of background in, in trading um, through his career to that point. But it was, I mean, it wasn't like a formal part of the mandate of, of that team, or of kind of Brad's team. Brad was in charge of all the manual traders at, at that time. Um, so he had a team of probably 15 or 20 traders, and they were broken out by sector. And he was, he was kind of the boss. And so, yeah, I, I mean, this was just one summer. So what were the projects we were working on? And yeah, again, I think it was just kind of like random side projects. He'd have an idea of, you know, maybe he, he recognized that, that if there was a big uh, imbalance leading into the open, that the stock tended to dislocate on the open and then come back right afterwards. And so he'd try to like have us look at data and see if, you know, we could develop a model for this. But again, it wasn't like, a big part of that team. It wasn't like this was like we were going to put a lot of money behind this and start trading it. It was more just um, various like analyses that we were doing just to kind of learn more about how the markets were working and, and test out some of his theories. But it never really turned into anything super material. But it was a really great learning experience to kind of see the kind of data that we had available to us. Okay, sure. No, I imagine it, it definitely would have been. So now that's very cool that you were able to land such a, a great job like that straight out of university. That's very cool. Yeah, so I mean, that was actually while I was still in college. Um, was then, and then I came back to work for for Brad and for Rob full time uh, after I finished college, so after my last year. So during my last year of college of university, Brad got this promotion to leave the the manual trading side and move on to the electronic trading side. Uh, and so he he had the mandate to basically kind of rebuild that whole platform from scratch. Um, RBC at the time had an existing electronic trading platform. This is all kind of detailed in, in Flash Boys a little bit. Um, but Brad took over that team and basically kind of rebuilt that platform. And so I was part of that starting team um, that took what we had and, and basically just re-engineered it all. And that's really when we got into it because now, you know, instead of it just being little side projects, it was the main product that that team was responsible for was trading algorithms um, for buy-side trading firms uh, to do their execution. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit more. I think what you're referring to there is what's what was called Thor. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was kind of our flagship product. So when we started off, we had an existing suite of algorithms. They weren't very good. Um, it was our job to rebuild them all and come up with kind of a new platform. And the very first thing that Brad had his focus um, was he pulled from his previous experience this this notion that or this experience that he'd had. Uh, where every time he, you know, saw 50,000 shares of, you know, Intel stock for sale and he clicked his button to buy all of those 50,000 shares, he would never get actually, never actually buy 50,000 shares. He would always wind up only getting 
25,000 shares and the rest of the, those shares that looked available um, disappeared. And he, he kind of, I guess this experience, it, had, it hadn't always been that way, but maybe in the last you know, two or three years, it had gotten worse and worse. And so he wanted to figure out what was going on there and build a tool uh, so that that wouldn't happen anymore, so that you could actually buy what you saw available. Um, and so we didn't really know at the beginning when we started that process. We were just kind of researching, trying to figure out what was happening. Are those shares actually available? Uh, like, who are those sellers saying that they're willing to sell? Um, the, you know, based on our understanding of the market, it should have been possible to actually buy from all of the sellers in the market at a given time. But the tools that we had available certainly weren't doing that. And so we started just running these experiments, trying to understand what was happening that led to that outcome uh, and see if we could come up with a way to fix it. And so that was like the very first project when I joined uh, was us running these experiments, testing out our theories. Our very first theories, you know, right when we started this, were that was that there were high-frequency traders, fast traders that were so fast that if Nasdaq had 10,000 shares for sale, and that 10,000 shares represented 100 individual orders of 100 shares each, that when we sent an order to Nasdaq to buy 10,000 shares, that there were traders so fast that they could see our first, you know, trades as they were happening on the Nasdaq and then react to those trades and cancel their orders that were kind of in the back of the queue, um, all at that single price level. And so we ran experiments where we would try this and um, we would send all you know orders to just one exchange at a time. And then we'd send orders to two exchanges. And as we were running these experiments, we realized that was that definitely wasn't the case. If you sent one order to one exchange, you always interacted with all of the shares that exchange ha- had available. Um, so no one was fast enough to get out of the way once our order got there. And that's when we you know realized that it wasn't traders so fast they could react to our trades on that single market. It was traders reacting to our trades on other markets and then changing their order composition on the markets we hadn't arrived to yet. And that's that's how kind of Thor came about. Right, right. Okay. So building this this flagship Thor algorithm, did this get around that problem? Um, like did it actually solve the issue that you're highlighting here? Yeah. So so basically once we had once we had kind of eliminated a few of our early theories and realized that what was happening is it was very fast traders reacting to orders that we had sent to, you know, when we sent orders to multiple markets at the same time, our orders that arrived at the markets that were closest to us, um, those that trade, the trades that happened from those orders created a signal that allowed those fast traders on the other side to cancel their orders on other markets. Um, once we realized that was happening, it was pretty quick to, to come up with the idea that if we kind of time our orders such that they all arrive at all the different markets at roughly the same time, there won't be enough time for anyone to get out of the way to react to earlier trades um, and get out of the way for later trades. If they're all happening really close together, there will be no chance to react like that. So that was the idea of Thor. Once we built it, so it's kind of, it was a cool experience because we'd run experiment after experiment every single time, you know, you're running the experiment and kind of liquidity is disappearing or, or these quotes are disappearing and we're not able to trade with them. And then it was the very first test. We kind of, one of the, the programmers coded up this algorithm that would just time it and it was a very crude algorithm. Um, wasn't super precise at all, but it, and it was just like the very first time we clicked out and to send our orders to all the markets with, with doing this, this timing and it just bought all the shares that were available and we got every single share. Um, it was just kind of crazy because we, you know, we'd been testing this for a couple months at this point. And we'd never had that experience, and we'd run a lot of experiments, and none of them had gotten anywhere close to have it just go from not working at all to 100% working uh, in just one step. Uh, it was pretty, it was pretty fun and pretty exciting. Um, but once we had kind of built this test algorithm, it was only a, you know a couple more months to kind of productionize it, get it available to our customers, and that was like the main thing we sold for the next probably year was. Uh, we built up algorithms around this one concept and, and it was quite successful. Okay, okay, interesting. Now, I probably should have asked this a lot earlier, but what actually was RBC and, and who were these algorithms trading for? Were these algorithms that were executing client orders or was it RBC's money you were trading? Um, can you add a little context around that? Yeah, it's great. That's a great question. Um, so at RBC, we were in the, the role of the broker. So these were... You know, my initial job as an, as an intern was on the manual trading desk, um, but again, trading on behalf of, of clients. And the clients were mutual fund companies, pension funds, hedge funds, uh, large institutional investors. So we were an institutional broker. And then we, when we moved over to electronic trading, it was still the same client base. So Brad already had all of his existing relationships with hedge funds and mutual funds. 
It was the same clients he was serving. It was just now building uh, computer programs to do the trading instead of having humans do the trading. Okay, okay. So tell us about what led up to the decision of leaving RBC to go and start IEX. Like how did you, where did that idea come from? Sure. Um, So I was at RBC for probably about two, two and a half years before we came up with the idea for IEX. And, you know, from the very first month, we, we would talk about startup ideas all the time. You know, Rob and I would go into Brad's office uh, and he, Brad would have some crazy idea for, uh, let's say, uh, an exchange that would list golfers and you could buy shares in a golfer. And if that golfer was successful, you'd get you know a portion of their winnings or, you know, an idea for uh, an iPhone app that concert goers would all hold, you know, download this app and hold up their app at the concert and it would be a light show in the crowd and just kind of crazy off the wall ideas for, for startups, uh, totally unrelated to what we were doing. And we would talk about these all the time and they would, would be with kind of varying levels of seriousness. Um, but it was just kind of something we did uh, all the time. And then IX was just kind of, it started off the same as any of the other ones where it was just, here's another idea. We've got, um, kind of a great amount of knowledge around how the stock market works. And at RBC, we, you know, we'd built a good brand and we had good products and, you know, great relationships with our customers and people really trusted us. Um, but we were still somewhat limited in kind of the scope of the solutions we were able to offer because, you know, RBC is just one out of many brokers and most um, buy side firms trade with a lot of different brokers and they weren't going to just move all of their trading activity to RBC, that wasn't a particularly realistic proposition. So this was just an idea, maybe we could use this expertise and this knowledge about how the market works to come up with a solution that all brokers could could use together to kind of give our end client the same kind of experience that they were getting with us, the same kind of trading experience, um, but on a bigger scale. And so it started off just as another one of these ideas and just got a little more serious and a little more serious until it's got to the point where we were, you know, we were very serious about it and we decided to, to jump ship. <laughs> Okay, so one thing kind of led to another. Um, okay, so where did you even begin to start? Because <laughs> from the way I see it, like having the idea that you're going to build a new trading venue from scratch seems like a huge task. What's necessary to make that happen? Like what were the first steps? Where did you even begin? So we were when we started off, we were in a very fortunate position because um, – Number one, we had great relationships with kind of our end customer, which is the buy side. So we already kind of knew the market extremely well um, from a customer perspective. And then we also knew kind of how the stock market works very, very well. So we had a great amount of knowledge around that. Um, I'd say the very earliest iterations of what this was going to look like, um, the main technology that we were kind of known for was uh, routing technology. Thor was an order router. And so we were thinking we'd build this sort of generic order router that would be broker agnostic and um, the buy side could access this order router through all of their brokers. And then, you know, doing actual matching of orders, kind of more of an exchange function that we kind of have on the side is like a, a little side business that as the, the main business grew and grew, we'd have more opportunities to have where we'd have a buyer and a seller at the same time. We can match them with each other and, you know, generate additional revenue that way. So that was kind of how the idea evolved in terms of the logistics and starting a stock exchange or a, an ATS and hopefully soon to be a stock exchange. Um, it's, it's very, very capital intensive, very, very uh, intensive from a regulatory perspective. So there's a lot that went into it. Um, I guess one other thing we were lucky in is that we had a, a very big team to start with. So we had uh, nine people in the beginning, uh, most of whom came from RBC, including you know four very senior people from RBC who'd, who'd been in the industry for a very long time and really understood how the markets worked. Um, and it was really our COO, John Schwal. Um, he just, you know, so diligent and so knowledgeable about the regulatory landscape um, just had us in a good position where we were well aware of all the regulatory hurdles we would have along the way to getting to this point. And it was just, you know, still multiple years of work with a lot of people working on it to, to you know, kind of reach all those milestones along the way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I imagine that definitely would have been a big help. I can only imagine how much, um, how much of the regulation and that sort of thing you, you've had to deal with. So, um, I mean, let's let's just be very clear here. So let's talk about what actually is IEX um, and how does it differ from other exchanges? Sure. 
so right now we're we're not yet an exchange. We're in the exchange application process right now. We're something known as an alternative trading system, or ATS. Uh, a lot of people would also probably call us a dark pool. Um, the main difference between an ATS and an exchange, from a trading perspective, or the main difference between a dark pool and an exchange, is that uh, the exchanges all disseminate quotations, um, whereas dark pools typically do not disseminate quotations. So, a quotation is uh, if you're a buyer and you're sitting in the market, uh, you're bidding for stock, or you're a seller sitting in the market offering stock. On an exchange, most of the buyers and sellers will display their order. So they'll say out loud, "I want to buy a thousand shares of Microsoft at this price," and then the exchange will disseminate that quote out to the world, advertising that this buyer is there with a, a firm order ready to buy. Uh, in a dark pool, typically most order well in dark pool, kind of by definition, all orders are hidden. Um, so you might have that same buyer, it might even be the same firm, willing to buy the same number of shares at the same price in the dark pool, um, but the dark pool won't advertise that, the presence of that buyer. And so the trade will only happen in the dark pool if a buyer and seller happen to intersect, um, not knowing each other was there. Uh, so we're kind of in this fuzzy middle ground right now where we're still in ATS, um, but we're technically not a dark pool because we do disseminate quotes. Um, our quotes are not protected quotes. Uh, there's a lot of regulation in the U.S. around if there's another market out there with a quotation, you can't do a trade uh, at a price that's through that quotation. So, for example, if there's a buyer at $10 on NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange can't do a trade at $9.99 unless they also ship an order in NASDAQ at $10. So they can't let a seller come in and trade at $9.99 on NASDAQ unless that they're also sending shares uh, to interact with that buyer on the New York Stock Exchange. In our situation, even if we had a buyer at ten dollars, they could still do they could still do a trade at nine ninety nine because our quotes aren't protected, so we don't contribute um, to the national market system. Okay, okay, got it. So, why do you decide to display your quotes at IEX, considering that you're technically a dark pool at this stage, whereas other dark pools don't display their quotes? Why do you decide to do that at IEX? So when we started. Um, from the very, very early days, uh, we, we had kind of this end goal of becoming an exchange. And so our path to becoming an exchange, the regulatory hurdle to becoming a dark pool or an alternative trading system is a lot lower than the hurdle to becoming an exchange. So we, we were going to start as an ETS and then eventually we become an exchange. Um, and the reason for us publishing quotes now, um, so I, I guess just to be clear, we don't publish, uh, not every single order that we receive is displayable. Um, so we only publish quotes for orders that are sent to us with the specific instruction that this order should be advertised. 90% um, of our, our trading activity is still hidden orders, just like any other dark pool, but 10% of our, our volume is displayed orders. So that's a customer saying, I want you to advertise my order, knowing that it's not a protected quotation. Um, so the reason for us kind of, so we started off as fully dark, and then we started offering this ability for customers to send us displayed orders, just like an exchange, because it's just part of our transition path. We want it to be a smooth transition from dark pool to exchange, and kind of the, we're in this middle ground now where we're kind of halfway there, where we're publishing quotes just like an exchange, but we don't have exchange status. We're not protected like an exchange. Um, but it should make the transition to when we do become an exchange a lot smoother. Okay, so why would... A a participant decide to display their order if they've got the option to hide it? Um, so, I mean, the, the idea there is it's typically a market maker who's displaying quotes uh, in general, but the reason to display an order versus keep it hidden is uh, if you want to buy stock at a price uh, and you display that order, a seller will know you're there so they can know where to find you. Um, you're not just relying on chance for them to interact with you. It's kind of a... a double-edged sword and that, you know, if you want to buy a lot of stock and you display that, people are going to know a big buyer just entered the, the market. Um, and so usually institutional investors aren't going to display their entire intention uh, all out loud, all up front. But for a market maker who's kind of always in the market, you want, you know, other participants in the market to know you're there so that they, they find you and they interact with you. So it really just depends on what kind of strategy you're running. Okay. Yeah. Great answer. That, that makes total sense. Um, so what's your involvement uh, these days as co-founder slash quantitative developer? What are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis at IEX? Uh, it's changed a lot since, since the early days. Um, I would say 
in the beginning, my role was primarily as a developer. Um, I built uh, some of the applications in our system, like the Smarter Router, for example. Uh, and I would say probably maybe eight months ago or so, it transitioned into more of a data science role. So I do a lot of uh, quantitative analysis now, um, analyzing customer behavior, analyzing kind of how trading is happening on our market relative to the rest of the stock market. Uh, so I do a lot more of that these days, although in the last, I would say, three months or so, as this uh, process of going through getting exchange approval from the SEC has, has ramped up, I've had more of a role in that as well. So basically kind of understanding what you, we've been going through this public comment period where uh, companies are around the industry and, and individuals outside the industry have been commenting on our application to become an exchange. And so we've had to kind of manage that process, um, submitting our own comments and responding to those those comments. And so I've been involved in that as, as well. Um, and then finally, through this process, uh, we've decided to change the trading behavior of our of our router as kind of a concession we're making. Uh, and so since that was an application that I built originally, I've had to make a lot of changes to that uh, in anticipation of once we're in exchange that that behavior is going to change. Okay. Now, I just want to ask you um, more. I just want to ask you a little bit about uh, some of the terminology. So, you've mentioned the smart router or auto router um, a few times. Can you just explain um, to myself and, and any of the listeners who don't quite understand uh, what that's actually referring to? Um, what is a, a smart route order? Sure. Um, so, I would say from a trading perspective, there's kind of two main applications in our system. And one is the matching engine, and the other is the smart order router. Um, the matching engine is the system that takes buy orders and sell orders from all of our customers and throws them together. And when there's a buy order and a sell order that can interact with each other, uh, it matches them and it puts up a trade and then it reports that trade. Um, that's the matching engine. The smart order router is responsible for connecting. Uh, to the rest of the street. So like I was mentioning earlier, there's this concept of protected quotes. Um, every exchange needs to know what's happening on all the other exchanges and they need to know uh, if there are if there are quotes available at better prices at other exchanges so that it knows um, at what prices it can trade at. And then in addition, pretty much every exchange offers uh, a smart order router. A smart order router is a technology that actually will send orders um, to the other exchanges. So it's it's the logic that says our customer wants to buy 10,000 shares and it's giving us, you know, the customer's instructing us to route this order out. So we'll match as many of those 10,000 shares as we can on IEX at a reasonable, at a valid price. And in addition, whatever's left, we'll try to uh, buy those shares from the other markets. And so we need the smarter router, consumes quotes from all the other markets, knows what's available, takes the you know balance of that order and breaks it up and sends you know, orders externally to those other markets uh, on behalf of our client. Right. Okay. Cool. Cool. Got it. Okay. So one of the things IEX try to position themselves around, um, or from what I gather, is bringing fairness to the market. So I'd like to ask you, in what way are markets currently unfair? It's a good question. Um, I think kind of our big concern is, is just the evolution of the markets over the last five, 10 years uh, is the main thing that we focus on. And uh, if you look at the exchanges 10 years ago, uh, their business was, you know, matching buyers and sellers, matching trades. And every time an exchange matches a trade, they get, you know, a tiny commission and that's how they make money. And over the last 10 years, it's really shifted where that's no longer their primary source of, of profits. Uh, nowadays, the exchanges make most of their money from selling, kind of tangential technology services. So things like co-location in their data centers um, or proprietary market data feeds. Uh, services like that generate more revenue and more profits for the exchanges than the actual trading itself. And so it's just this strange ecosystem that's evolved where exchanges now have this incentive where if they make those technology services more valuable and they can charge a higher fee for those technology services, uh, and they make more money that way. And so their incentive is to make those technology services as valuable as possible so that they can charge the most for them. Um, and how do you make your you know, co-location space more valuable or, or your proprietary market data feed more, more valuable? 
whoever's buying that has to be able to extract value from it. So they're, they're in a situation where there's, there's really a pretty big conflict of interest where the more money that someone can make using all these technological services, the more profitable the exchange is. And we've just kind of seen this evolution and it definitely kind of rubs us the wrong way. Um, and so I guess in terms of what we're doing at IEX to, to kind of counter that, part of it is just like philosophy is just we're very transparent about what we're doing, very transparent about how we're making money. It's just from trading. We just try to foster kind of fair trading on fair terms. Um, one of the big things that we focused on is this idea of uh, when the market's in transition, when the price of a stock is changing, uh, that's a very, you know, it's kind of a window of time where a very fast trader might recognize that the price is changing and profit off of that knowledge. So for example, if the price of a stock is moving up while it's in the process of transitioning up, that fast trader knowing that it's moving up might send a buy order at the old price. And if there's an exchange or a dark pool that doesn't know about the change in the price, they might still have sellers that they're willing to, to match at the old price at the lower price. Uh, and that's a profitable opportunity for the fast trader. And so one big thing at IX is making sure we always have as up-to-date a view of the market as possible. And even more than that, um, not only have you know as up-to-date a view, a view of the market as possible, but also make sure that we have a more up-to-date view of the market than our very fastest customer. And so that's kind of the, the big thing that we've done here from a trading perspective is that we delay all of our customer orders before they come into our system so that by the time it actually gets into our system and we're willing to match it, we have a more up-to-date view of the market of what the fair price in the market is than that customer did when they generated that order. So a very fast trader, if they see, hey, the market's moving up, I'm going to send an order to buy at the old low price. By the time that order actually gets to our matching engine, we know that the market's moved up. We won't trade them at the stale price anymore. Okay, so how does, even if there's a, a very fast trader, let's say the price is $9.99, how do they know that the next tick is going to be $10? Um, like, like how, how do they know that? Um, so, so I guess, yeah, a very simple case would be if the market's already moved. So let's say the, the, let's just use midpoint trading as, as an example, cause that's kind of the main trading activity in dark pools for us. Two thirds of our trading happens at the midpoint. So the midpoint is the kind of halfway between the best bid and the best offer, the highest price someone's willing to, to buy it and the lowest price someone's willing to sell at. So let's say the midpoint was 999, like you said. So there are buyers in the market at 9.98 and there are sellers at $10 and that price is changing. So let's say that price is moving from a 9.99 midpoint to let's say a $10 midpoint. So let's say um, the spread is moving from 9.98 by 10 to 9.99 by 10.01. So that change is happening. Um, really the, the main scenario we're worried about is that change has already happened. So a buyer, you know, that offer of $10 was on NASDAQ and a buyer went to NASDAQ and bought all of the stock at NASDAQ and then bid for stock at, you know, $9.99. So they bought the stock at 10 and they bid for, or someone else bid at $9.99. So the price has already changed. So the price used to be $9.99, the midpoint used to be $9.99, but it's now 10. Uh, after the price has changed, NASDAQ, you know, NASDAQ's quote just changed. NASDAQ is disseminating that quote to the world. They're saying, hey, someone just bought our offer at 10. Our best offer is now 10.01. It takes time for all the different players in the system, um, both the other dark pools, the other exchanges, uh, and the other traders. It takes time for everyone to, to actually get that message. Um, that message has to leave NASDAQ's data center and then you know, get processed by your servers. Um, if you're a dark pool, wherever your dark pool servers are located, you need to process that information that NASDAQ's quote has changed. So if a very fast trader is able to see, hey, NASDAQ, you know, they have a new quote. Using that new quote, like that knowledge of the new quote, I know there's, an, you know, a new buyer in the market at this price. Now, that trader can send an order to a dark pool that might still have orders um, trading at the old midpoint. And it's basically that discrepancy they're taking advantage of. It's not that they know that the market's about to move. It's that they see that the market's already moved and they use that knowledge, knowing that some, you know, some dark pools are a little bit slower at recognizing that, using that discrepancy of knowledge to execute a trade on the, the slower dark pool. Understood. Okay. Okay. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. 
not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com chat to learn more. So the delay that you place on all the orders that come in to IEX, what's the length of that delay or, or the speed bump as you call it? Uh, so it's, it's roughly 38 miles of, of coiled uh, cable. And that equates to about 350 microseconds of delay. And the reason we picked that amount of time is uh, we have a sense of where, you know, we know where our data center is located. We know where our servers are located. We know where all the other exchanges are located. And we, you know, we use, uh, we know our network connections to the other exchanges. And so the idea of that 350 microseconds of delay, we know that when an event happens in the market, wherever it happens, whether it happens in the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or BATS, Whatever exchange it happens on, uh, when their quotes update, it takes us about 320 microseconds at the longest to recognize that those quotes have changed um, for the most part. There's also a, a stock exchange in Chicago that trades some stocks out of Chicago. So that is, you know, it's a very tiny part of the market. So excluding them for the rest of the market, it takes us about 320 microseconds to recognize when a quote changes. Uh, and so we wanted to give ourselves a buffer a little bit larger than that. So that if an event happens in the market, even if someone could instantaneously recognize that event and send us an order, which is impossible, but even if they could do that, we would still have enough time such that by the time their order got into our system, we would already, you know, also recognize that change. Okay. So the delay is actually, um, occurs because of the, the cable that you have coiled up. Um, it's not actually delayed by a computer program or anything like that. It's actually the, the coil, is it? That's correct, yes. Okay, interesting. And just so we can get our head around this and put it into perspective, how long is 350 microseconds? I mean, you often hear comparisons to these like very small timeframes um, compared to kind of the blink of an eye. Is there anything you can compare 350 microseconds to? I think I've heard one thousandth of a blink of an eye. I think the blink of an eye is about 350 milliseconds. So it's it's a very, very small amount of time. <laughs> it's it's hard to get your head around, isn't it? So it's just yeah, it's just definitely. crazy at how how fast these things happen. Um, yeah. so I mean part of the uh, part of the um, the the idea of putting the speed bump in place is part of the motive for doing that to keep high speed or, or high frequency traders out of the IEX dark pool? So I guess to that point, uh, I don't like bucketing kind of all automated trading strategies under a single term, high frequency trading. Um, there are a lot of different types of trading strategies uh, that use computers and that are very focused on speed. Um, for example, if you're doing a cross-border arbitrage strategy, so in the U.S., you know, for example, if you're trying to arbitrage the price of a Canadian company as it's trading in the U.S. and it's trading in, in the Canadian markets, and you're doing that FX conversion, and you're trading in both markets, and you're trying to kind of profit anytime those markets fall out of line, um, that would be a strategy that's very dependent on speed, but it's not necessarily trying to take advantage of, say, a structural flaw in how the stock market works, where there's you know, an exchange or a dark pool with slower technology such that they have a blind spot when they're willing to match trades at unreasonable prices. So I'd say those are two very, very different types of strategies. Um, and I would say we're trying to kind of pinpoint and with a scalpel cut out the strategies that we consider structural arbitrage or kind of structurally unfair, taking advantage of a flaw in the system and still allow the other speed-based strategies that are you know, providing some value to the market, like a traditional market-making strategy or a strategy that, you know, a statistical arbitrage or a you know, cross-border arbitrage or an index arbitrage strategy that's taking related securities and keeping their prices in line that very much cares about speed as well because, you know, whenever there is a, an opportunity for one of those types of arbitrage, uh, only one trader can successfully 
profit off of that trade and bring the market back together. So two traders competing in the same strategy, they're, they're both going to be very concerned with speed. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that all speed-based trading is bad per se. Uh, I would say just the, the situations where someone's taking advantage of a flaw in this dark pulse technology that really shouldn't exist. You're not adding any value. You're just taking advantage of their inability uh, to match trades at fair prices. Um, we're trying to prevent any of that type of trading from happening while still allowing the rest. Okay. And do you think that any other exchanges may follow suit um, and, and implement a similar kind of tactic as, as your speed bump? Do you think that's, that's ever likely to happen? It's a very interesting question because you, you've had, um, as we've gone through this process of uh, filing for an exchange license and you know the other exchanges have all commented on our filing, and one of the comments that they've made or that a couple of them have made is that uh, if we're allowed to have a speed bump and that, that gets approved by the SEC, that they may want to follow suit and introduce speed bumps of their own. Um, so they've said that they might. I think one thing to think about is that, like I said earlier, so much of their profits are now derived from selling these services that are, you know, so focused on speed. And so, if they ever, on a, you know, a meaningful, in a meaningful way, try to introduce a speed bump like the one that we have, that kind of reduces the value of, you know, pure speed, uh, it would potentially compromise those other revenue lines. And so, I think, I think if we, if our model really takes off. Um, and we start to capture real market share from the other exchanges, I think they may follow suit at that point, but I don't think they'll proactively uh, sacrifice those those lines of revenue, you know, before that happens. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So I'd like to um, sort of go back to something we talked a little bit about earlier, um, and that's actually dark pools. So just the, the subject of dark pools um, in general, why would a participant choose to trade in a dark pool instead of just trading on a recognized exchange like, you know, New York Stock Exchange, for example, why would they go to somewhere like IEX? That's a great question. Um, so I'm going to focus my answer on just an institutional investor because um, the way retail trading works is totally different. Um, so an institutional investor, say a mutual fund company that's buying a big chunk of stock or selling a big chunk of stock, why would they choose to go to a dark pool or why would they ask their broker because they're trading through brokers, why would they ask their broker to go to a dark pool instead of just sending their order to an exchange? Um, so first of all, that decision isn't really typically made by the investor. It's typically made by the broker. Um, that's that's kind of a low-level trading decision. The, the investor will say, buy me 100,000 shares of Microsoft, um, but it's the broker who's actually managing that trade and breaking it up and choosing which pools and which exchanges to go to with that trade, deciding when to trade um, and, and at what prices. So typically it's the broker making the decision, not the investor. But I mean, we, we do try to cater to those, those institutional investors and we do try to encourage them to come straight to us and ask their brokers to come straight to us. Uh, the reasons why someone might want to go to a dark pool and keep in mind that orders on dark pools are typically hidden. Uh, if you're trying to buy 100,000 shares of Microsoft in a single go, I want to buy all 100,000 shares at the current price. It's basically impossible to do that on an exchange. Uh, you know, to buy a huge amount of stock, much more than is typically quoted in that name, you can't. You can't just go to an exchange. If you go to an exchange with that order, um, with an aggressive order, you're going to immediately, you know, rip the stock. You're going to create a, a big immediate impact. If you go to a dark pool, you have a chance where there might be another institution on the other side of that trade who might happen to find you. You, you could patiently wait in your dark pool all day and maybe you'll get, you know, especially if you use a minimum quantity on your order, that's a thing that you can do uh, with a hidden order that you can't do with a, with a displayed order is you can specify, say, I want to buy a million shares of stock, but only in chunks of at least 100,000 shares at a time. So I can send that order to a dark pool and I'll have a chance that another institution will bump into me and I'll get a big trade with no market impact um, and the, the cost there is that, you know, the stock might move away from me and I might not get anything done, but that's kind of the big value proposition that we talk about is that, uh, a large investor can send a large order to us and have a chance of getting a very large execution without having any market impact at all. Okay. Okay. Now this might be somewhat of a, of a newbie question, but to the prices on a dark pool, and we may have actually already covered this, but to the prices on a dark pool vary from the prices on a on an actual exchange? 
by much. I think we probably already covered this, but uh, sort of, we sort of covered it, but it's a great question. And um, basically, all dark pools and exchanges are all covered under the main regulation in the U.S., which is Reg NMS, which stands for National Market System. And what that says is that all trades have to happen within the best bid and the best offer across the market. So this is all the exchanges with protected quotes, whatever the best bid, the highest buy order among those exchanges that's displayed in the lowest sell order, the lowest price of the, of the most aggressive sell order, um, that creates a range of prices. And all the exchanges have to trade in that range and all the dark pools have to trade in that range. So the price that a stock is trading in a dark pool, just like an exchange, it depends on is there a buyer and a seller that are both willing to trade at the same price. Um, but in addition to that, that price where they overlap needs to be within that range as dictated by Reg NMS. So it has to be within the MBBO, the national best bid and offer. Um, so yes, they all trade in line with each other. It's not that every single trade happens at the exact same price all the time, you know, over a period of time. It's just within that same range. But in a liquid stock, that range is, is a penny. Okay. Um, yeah. So how much volume is traded in dark pools, um, you know, in the US uh, compared to recognized exchanges? Uh, most volume happens on exchanges. I think it's something like 60% of the volume happens on exchanges. And most of that is concentrated. There's three exchange families, really. Um, the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and VATS. And they each, you know, but they each have multiple uh, actual exchanges. But between those three families, they each trade about 20% between all of their markets. And then on dark pools, I believe it's something like 15 or 20%. Uh, of the market trades in, in dark pools. And most of those dark pools are operated by brokers. So like Goldman Sachs has a dark pool, Morgan Stanley has a dark pool, uh, firms like that. Uh, and IEX, you know, I would consider that in that realm in, as part of that uh, off-exchange ATS volume. And then the remaining uh, 20% or so, um, a lot of that is retail order flow that's executed off-exchange directly by retail market makers. So that's kind of a... a separate ecosystem that is still uh, held within the confines of Reg NMS. So that ecosystem trades in there have to happen uh, within the MBBO, just like trades on the exchanges and dark pools, but it's basically kind of completely segregated flow. Uh, and in, in addition to that, there's also uh, upstairs trading. So trades that are hap that don't happen on an exchange or in a dark pool, but just, you know, that a broker just matches two orders uh, and reports it to the tape directly. Um, so that's probably the last 5% or so. Okay. So you said something interesting there, which I think may have almost been referring to uh, payment for order flow, um, mm -hmm. which is something we've actually talked about on the podcast in the past with uh, okay. Hayne Bodek. Um, now, you guys do something a little bit differently. Um, you don't accept, um, I'm not entirely sure how it works. You don't accept payment from brokers um, for executing their orders or something along those lines. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're different in, in that way? Sure. Um, so you've, you've touched on two different topics there. And so I'll, I'll start with payment for order flow. Payment for order flow is the term that refers to uh, the typical relationship between a retail broker uh, and a retail market maker. So like I just said, the retail world, you know, using E-Trade or Charles Schwab to, you know, buy stock for a person at home, that world, basically all of that stock in the U.S. trades completely separately from the rest of the market um, for the most part. And so... In the retail world, E-Trade has arrangements with uh, high-frequency trading firms where those firms will pay them and E-Trade will send that firm kind of all of its order flow or, you know, a subset of its order flow. So, for example, you go on your E-Trade account and you say buy 10 shares of Apple at market, E-Trade will, you know, take your $7 commission um, and they will also send that 10, those 10 share, that 10 share order to a firm like Knight or Citadel. And that firm will uh, execute your order for you, give you your price, uh, and then E-Trade will deliver that those shares to you at that price. And Citadel or Knight, whoever the market maker, the, the high-frequency trading firm on the other side of that trade, will also give a payment to E-Trade. So E-Trade is getting paid on both sides, and that's that's called payment for order flow. Um, that that world is pretty separate from what we do. Um, so I don't you know have a ton of experience or knowledge about it beyond kind of what I just said. Um, the thing that we do that's different from the other exchanges uh, is that we don't offer maker-taker pricing. And so the pricing model that's kind of evolved as the new norm on exchanges is that 
they pay market makers. On it. So every time there's a trade, the exchange takes a small commission. Uh, and in the past, that commission was kind of a flat commission. Both the buyer and seller, whoever was sitting in the market and whoever entered the market would both pay a, a fee. Um, but the way it's evolved is that nowadays, on most of the large exchanges, uh, they pay them the person uh, who's sitting in the market a small rebate, and they charge a fee to the person uh, removing liquidity. So in a case where New York Stock Exchange has a buyer at $10, and then a seller sees that quote and sends an order to sell at $10, the buyer who was already in the market will get a rebate, the seller will pay a fee. And the fee is slightly larger than the rebate, and that's how they make their money from trading. Um, like I said, the profits from trading have come down a lot because the fee and the rebate are very close together usually. Uh, but they make a lot of money in other ways, like selling technology services, so they're okay with it. Um, the problem with having this structure, so this structure incentivizes people to make markets, to, to have out loud quotes on the exchanges. And so there's just been like a huge pro proliferation of, of new order types you know, that are all geared around harvesting rebates, getting as many rebates as possible. Um, I guess the problem from a, the, the main problem that we see from an institutional investor perspective is that this kind of strange fee rebate structure that's evolved, there's different fees and different rebates on all the different markets. Some markets have an inverted structure where the market maker actually pays the fee and the remover of liquidity gets the rebate, where it's backwards. Um, a broker who's charged with trading an order on behalf of an, an investor, that broker, uh, the broker is the one who incurs those fees and gets those rebates. They typically don't pass those fees and rebates back to their customer. So it creates this conflict of interest for the broker in this case, where a broker, if they get an order to buy a thousand shares and they see 10 different markets, and those markets all have different fees and some will give rebates, that broker is going to try to go to the ones that give rebates um, because they'll, you know, they'll make more money that way. Uh, and if it's a small order, that's probably fine. But if it's a large order and they're kind of favoring certain exchanges uh, and, you know, trying not trying to avoid other exchanges, they might wind up missing out on, on liquidity that's available and their customer might get a worse experience. So we just see make or take or these complex pricing structures as creating conflicts of interest for brokers that wind up hurting investors. And so we don't want to contribute to that. So we just have a, a simple flat fee model uh, for trading on IEX. Okay, now that sounds that sounds really good. Um, so just jumping back to the, the subject of dark pools, um, is there any downside for other market participants by, um, by taking by taking trading activity off the exchange and into dark pools, is there any sort of negative flow-on effect to um, traders who are participating in your recognized exchanges? That's a really interesting question. I think if you asked any exchange, they would say, yes, there's a huge problem with that. And I think if you asked any dark pool operator, they'd say, no, it's <laughs> great. Um, I guess from my perspective, it's basically the same participants in the dark pools and on the exchanges for the most part. All the same market makers are in the dark pools. Um, the same high frequency traders are in the dark pools that are on the exchanges. The market, the dark pools markets are basically in line uh, with the exchange, the exchanges all the time. I think if you had a huge shift where you know 97% of trading was happening in the dark, there would be, you know, price discovery would be a little bit tougher. So I think if it went too far, you know, in that direction, that would be bad. Um, I think dark pools provide a service, but for the most part, they're not really used for that service. The service I'm talking about is what, what I was talking about earlier, where uh, a dark pool offers an opportunity for a very large trader to put a large order into the market, have a chance of executing, but not have any kind of adverse impact in the stock if they don't execute. Um, I don't think dark pools are used. I think they're used a little bit for that, but I think... For the most part, like I said, most dark pools are operated by brokers and brokers use them as a chance to kind of execute trades and internalize trades without having to incur fees on the exchanges. So that kind of goes back to the maker-taker fee model on the exchanges because it's kind of shifted to favor market makers and hurt removers of liquidity, which are typically investors. Um, the brokers who would typically incur those fees, they want to try to avoid those fees so they create this dark pool and they create this environment in the dark pool where the same market makers will be in their own dark pool but they can do the trading in their own dark pool and avoid having to pay the fee to the exchange. Um, I think that dynamic you know, doesn't really add any value So, uh, to the end investor. It's just kind of a broker preferencing their own dark pool uh, 
you know, that and it, it just kind of fragments liquidity without adding tremendous value. So I think, you know, that's not necessarily super valuable to to investors. Um, but having no dark pools, you know, the, dark pools do offer this this one good service. So I think having a balance. I think the other great thing about um, having dark pools, kind of the path that we took, where we start off as a dark pool, and now we're a, you know, an alternative trading system that has lit in dark trading, and hopefully soon we'll be an exchange. Uh, the barriers to entry to becoming a dark pool are a lot lower. Uh, they're still quite high, but they're a lot lower than the barrier to becoming an exchange. So it offers this path where if you have a new model, you can start off as a dark pool, um, kind of test out your model, see if it catches on, grow your model, and then eventually move on to becoming an exchange. That's the path that we took. Um, that's the path that Bats took, which is the you know the next newest uh, entry in, into the exchange world. So I think it, it offers this avenue for new competition. Uh, new competition in the market. So that's good. So I don't think it's, you know, I think too dramatic a shift in either direction would be bad, but having this path to becoming an exchange is definitely a good thing. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great answer. Well said. Um, so what is your, what is your motive and what are the benefits of actually filing for exchange status? Um, the big one is that I think it'll open up new avenues for us to offer the protections that we currently offer to our customers. Um, to other, to kind of new types of customers. Um, one example is is the retail world. So I was saying most of the retail world is completely segregated, um, you know, through these payment for order flow relationships between a retail broker and a retail market maker. Um, but some of some retail order flow makes it, its way to the exchanges. Um, these days, almost none of it makes it, its way to IEX, but once we're an exchange, some of that order flow might come to us and, and we can potentially target that segment of the trading world. So basically the same protections that we're offering now, the same kind of products and services that we're offering now, we could probably offer them on a larger scale once we're in exchange, um, hit more segments of the market. Um, that's number one. Number two is as an exchange, uh, you're a self-regulatory organization. You just have a much bigger role in kind of the policy making side of this world. So it's kind of, it kind of will give us a seat at the table um, with the regulators uh, as they're coming up with new rules in that rulemaking process that we don't exactly have now. There's still ways for us to have influence, but I think we'll have a much greater uh, potential for influence as an exchange. I think those are the two big ones. Um, another thing about being an exchange is you can do uh, listings and IPOs. So right now, pretty much all of our services are targeted at traders, traders and investors. Um, once we're an exchange, we can come up with ways to help the actual companies uh, whose stock is being traded as well. So it opens that up. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are, I mean, filing for exchange status, have you hit any roadblocks? Has there been any pushback um, in going about that? Like where are you currently at with that? Um, so the process formally started last September. So it's been going on for quite a while. Even before that, we were already talking with the SEC, kind of socializing uh, this idea that we were going to apply to become an exchange and kind of going over our model with them. Um, so it's been going for quite a while. Uh, our exchange application, so the way an exchange uh, filing works is um, you write your, your kind of formal set of rules as to, for when you'll be an exchange, um, and you write this formal proposal to become an exchange, and you send that to the SEC, and then they publish it. They publish everything that you've written, and they open it up for public comment. Um, in the past, in you know, the past five, ten years, every time a company's filed to become an exchange, there's only been a few. Um, there's been very little public comment. For the most part, all of the exchanges these days are very, very similar to one another. And so when a new one pops up, nobody really has much to say about it because it's so similar to everything that already exists. Uh, our, our model from kind of a pure trading perspective, uh, there's a couple key differences like the speed bump um, that we talked about earlier. It's not that different, but there are a couple differences. So we're kind of more different than any of the other recent exchange applications. Uh, and that's led to a huge number of comments. Um, I think having the, the Michael Lewis book come out about us, um, create a lot of controversy in, in kind of our segment of the industry. And so a lot of people have a lot of strong opinions about us uh, already, even before this process started. And this was kind of a great uh, opportunity for, the, for those critics to kind of come out uh, and make their feelings heard. Um, so our, our exchange filing has had by far the most public comments um, of any exchange filing in history. 
Uh, we're up to almost 500 comments now. Uh, the comments are overwhelmingly positive. I think over 90% of those comments have been uh, in favor of our approval. Um, the ones that are positive have mostly come from institutional investors, pension funds, mutual funds, hedge funds, um, brokers, uh, you know, and then a lot from just kind of the general public. So people who'd read the book and, you know, got excited about what we're trying to do. So overwhelmingly, all of the public, com I mean, overwhelmingly, the public comments have been positive. Um, but then the other five, 10 percent that are negative have been very, very negative, very, very critical. Um, those have come primarily from other exchanges, uh, from a couple of high frequency trading firms uh, and from a couple of kind of uh, high frequency trading interest groups for the most part, uh, which is not surprising at all. Kind of basically our direct competitors and then the people that were kind of, kind of trying to uh, limit their ability to run their strategies. So it makes complete sense, the people that have come out uh, critical of us. Um, but yeah, our application has generated a huge amount of controversy and it's been a, a very long drawn out process as the SEC is trying to kind of sort through uh, all of these comments, positive and negative, and come up with kind of their own uh, opinions on whether or not we should be in exchange. Okay. So once they go through all these comments, like what's the next step from there? And when do you actually find out if you'll be accepted as an exchange? And if you are rejected for any reason, what's the what's the path forward from there? That's that's a great question. Uh, and I'm not sure I have a, a great answer for you. Um, the They were initially supposed to come up with a decision in December. Uh, they asked us for an extension and we gave them an extension until March uh, last month. And then March, I think it was March 23rd or something, uh, on that date when they were supposed to come up with the final decision, they asked us for another extension and we said no. Uh, they initiated some uh, proceedings, I believe it's proceedings to approve or deny IX. It's kind of this formal legal process and that basically extend the process by another three months. So now the, the now the deadline is June. Uh, I think it's June 18th now. And that was kind of like the last uh, legal card that they could use to extend the process. So I think at this point, there's not really much precedent for, this, for the SEC to further extend uh, our application process. So we expect a decision to come uh, in two months in June. Uh, so hopefully we'll be approved. If we are denied, uh, I don't know. I guess we'll we'll go back to the drawing board and, and see what's next. I, I think we're very hopeful at this point that we'll we'll get approved. We firmly believe that everything we're doing is kind of well within the uh, regulatory constraints of how the market works. We're you know a free market solution. We're not asking for any special privileges or any special um, you know sanctions or anything like that. We we designed this model from the very beginning to fit nicely within all the existing rules. Um, the reason they keep delaying it is because there's been just so much controversy around it and so much noise that um, it's, I mean, it's completely reasonable from their perspective that they just like need time to consume all of this information that they've been bombarded with. Um, but I think we're pretty confident that, that we should get approved when the day comes. I think our, our bigger fear uh, is not that we'll get rejected, but that they'll come up with another reason to delay the approval and then, you know, the waiting game continues. Okay, sure. Well, I bet you're hanging out for June. <laughs> I wish yeah. you all the best, man. I really hope that um, all comes through for you. So, all right, Dan, well, let's call this a wrap. Is there anything else you wanted to add or do you think we've, we've covered um, some, some decent ground for now? I mean, we covered a lot of stuff. Okay, excellent. <laughs> hey, these are great questions. Thank you. No trouble, no trouble whatsoever. So where can listeners go to find out more about you and IEX? Uh, our website is iextrading.com. It's probably a good, a good place to start. Uh, I mean, the book Flash Boys tells our story from, from the beginning. Um, so I'd say those are probably two good resources if you want to learn more about IEX. Absolutely. And you're also on Twitter as well. What's the IEX Twitter handle? It's just at IEX. Okay. Very easy. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include all those notes at Chat with Traders. And Dan, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I think you did an awesome job of um, making some really complex subjects uh, very understandable. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. This is, this is fun. 
Thanks for listening right through, guys. I trust you enjoyed this interview with Dan. I certainly learned a lot from speaking with him. He's a great dude. And full full show notes for this episode can be found at chatwithtraders.com forward slash 75. Now, just to repeat the announcement I shared with you right at the beginning, I've recorded a second interview with Peter Brandt. This will not be released on the podcast like normal, though. It's a special subscriber-only Chat With Traders episode. So to hear this, go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash Peter, enter your email address, and this will give you full access to the interview, which runs for over 80 minutes. Again, that's chatwithtraders.com forward slash Peter to get this interview for free. All right, that's me for now. I'll catch you on the next episode. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Oh,